So shall we start? And so welcome everyone. And I'm Athar Hussain, director of the Asia Research Center at the London School of Economics. And apologies to all of you for a last minute change of venue. But strange things happen in Pakistan suddenly, so perhaps it's not uh, 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 inappropriate that we had to change the, but it's nothing to do with this particular event. Well, I have great pleasure in welcoming Ali Dayan Hassan, who is director of the Human Rights Watch in Pakistan and is a very well-known figure. And he has, before becoming the director of the Human Rights Watch in Pakistan, he was a journalist and is author of a number of publications and as well as a well-known media figure. So I don't, I think Ali Hassan will speak for what about half an hour, 45 minutes, and then the floor will be open to answers and questions. Well, given that there are not enough people for various reasons, if you like, you can move a bit forward, but up, up to you. And so with this, let me pass on the mic to Ali Dayan Hassan. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for being here. I was a student at the LSE uh, a little under 20 years ago, and I'm heartened by the fact that you can spend your undergraduate years um, in a fairly dissipated manner and still lecture at the old theater. Um, just goes to show. Um, now, the topic that you have been given, which is Pakistan after bin Laden, free fall or resurgence, sounds good. And actually, it was a, a blurb that we came up with to lure you in here. Uh, if we actually attempted to answer all the questions that are raised by this blurb, we would be here for a very long time indeed. But uh, I will do the version uh, when, when we write op-eds for, for, for the media, particularly uh, the international media, uh, you know, these op-eds are meant to be 750 words long. And basically what you do is that you write a paragraph and then you delete the entire paragraph and leave the one sentence that you began with uh, as the signifier. And um, that is pretty much what I will do. I will uh, uh, provide you with a series of signifiers and then in the Q&A that follows, we can flesh them out uh, as appropriate. Now, there are two aspects to what I want to share with you. One is what has happened to Pakistan in the last one year. Uh, from the 2nd of May 2011, when Osama bin Laden was found in the city of Abbottabad to date, what the impact of these events have been on the Pakistan-US relationship, what that relationship is, uh, from the standpoint of someone like me who works uh, for the advancement of human rights protections in Pakistan and the adoption and adherence to international human rights law and its instruments across the world uh, and within Pakistan. That is a fairly narrow focus, um, but I think it's important to clarify that. I think it is absolutely essential that we understand that someone like me operates from a standpoint where I do believe that 
civilian rule, constitutional rule, human rights protections, uh, and genuine periodic elections are the only way forward in a country like Pakistan. If we disagree on that, then we have a fundamental point of departure, uh, which also I'm happy to debate with you, but that is the framework that I'm operating in. Now, a year ago, uh, Pakistan's relationship with the US was tense. It was tense because there were mutually irreconcilable security paradigms at work. A year later, post bin Laden, it is abysmal. It is abysmal because those irreconcilable security paradigms have become even more irreconcilable. And as the US withdrawal from Afghanistan inches closer, everybody is digging in their heels for what they perceive to be the end game. My concern in all of this is uh, really not the well-being of the US or uh, whether the demands of the Pakistani military are met or not. My concern is how these events have impacted and will impact rights protections in Pakistan. What we have seen in the last one year is a steady deterioration in the human rights situation in Pakistan. The Pakistani military has been caught on the back foot. It has been embarrassed by the discovery of uh, OBL. In, well, the heart of Pakistan. And it has reacted to that embarrassment by adopting and propagating a default nationalist position which plays into xenophobia, into paranoia, and, um, and actually exacerbates tensions rather than reduces them. I think the, the most telling uh, uh, consequence of, of this particular policy has been what has happened to a man called Shaquille Afridi. Um, I don't know how many of you are aware of Shaquille Afridi. Shaquille Afridi is a doctor and, by all accounts, is a flawed person, shall we say. Uh, but Shaquille Afridi ran a uh, fake vaccination campaign. Uh, he hoodwinked the NGO he was working for, and in the process tried to get information that led to the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden. Shaquille Afridi was sentenced to 33 years in prison by a tribal court. Now, this would have, this in of itself, this is pretty peculiar, but what makes it absolutely bizarre is that he has actually been convicted not for sedition or treason, which was the rhetoric surrounding his arrest, his interrogation by the ISI, and actually his conviction when he was, uh, when the sentence was announced, but for actually aiding and abetting militants and militant groups. This is particularly ironic in a place like Pakistan where militant groups act frequently at the behest of the military, um, have often been proxies of the military, and continue in certain instances to operate as instruments of national security for the Pakistani military. Pakistan also has some of the most repressive anti-terrorism laws in the world except that it just doesn't use them to apprehend terrorists. 
uh, much of the counterterrorism operations that take place in Pakistan occur below the radar. Uh, they are extra-legal. Uh, the terrorism laws, which are vague and open-ended, are used to <laughs> apprehend and capture people, uh, arrest people, jail them, for all manner of other things, to settle all manner of other scores. Shaquille Afridi's case exemplifies the conundrum that the Pakistani state, and particularly its military, military establishment, finds itself in. The capture and killing of Osama bin Laden exposed the military's inability to certainly prevent an American onslaught in Pakistan, which is hardly surprising uh, if you operate with a rationalist framework, but uh, given what the rhetoric of the, of the Pakistani military has been within the country, uh, it is something that came as a great shock to large numbers of uh, hypernationalists within the country, and a lot of that, uh, that opinion has disproportionate reflection in the media. So this played, uh, the outrage played a very important role. And the conversation that should have begun in Pakistan as what was this man doing here in the first place quickly became one of outrage and umbrage at violated sovereignty. After that, there has been a series of events, including the, the Salala attack, which killed 24 Pakistani soldiers, uh, which have made the Pakistan-US relationship go into free fall. The Pakistani military appears to have talked itself into a corner and would like very much for a resumption of the security relationship with the United States, but finds itself in a situation politically where this resumption appears to be untenable. Now, what I'm saying is counterintuitive, perhaps, because you would think that given the, the, the level of saber-rattling that you, you, you see from the Pakistani military and the government that follows its line on matters of national security, that the military does not want this alliance, which takes me back to my initial point. The crucial thing to understand about the U.S.-Pakistan relationship and much of anti-Americanism in Pakistan is that it is a relationship that has always been security-centered. It is a relationship which is essentially a relationship between the Pakistani military and the United States. It has never been a relationship between the Pakistani people and, uh, uh, and the US, uh, recent rhetoric notwithstanding. And this has manifested itself in Pakistan's history through one constant. In the 80s, if the imperatives of that strategic relationship was the creation of a jihadist infrastructure, the Pakistani military and the US collaborated in the creation of that infrastructure with little or no regard for the social cost exacted of Pakistani society in that exercise. If post 9-11, the imperatives of that relationship were de-Islamization and a dismantling of that structure. The Pakistani military and the United States cooperated in that with little regard for its impact on Pakistani society and the damage it causes to the social fabric. 
So this idea, there, there is this idea that somehow anti-Americanism in Pakistan begins with George W. Bush, and for a while the idea was that it would end with President Obama. Um, this is simply not true. This is a long-term process. And the US, through the compulsions of its own political processes, um, given that it has these four-year election cycles, um, is unable to uh, perhaps practice long-term foreign policy options in Pakistan. Certainly, with the resumption of democracy in 2008 in Pakistan, for the first time, there was the promise of substantial civilian aid from the United States to Pakistan. It remains largely unrealized. And there is also uh, the assumption that two years of civilian aid will somehow result in the flowering of broad-based goodwill for the US uh, in Pakistan. This is not, of course, uh, how history works, and it is certainly not how it has worked in Pakistan. Then, of course, there is the question of the drones, predator drone strikes, and where they figure in the Pakistan-US relationship. And the point is that they are a hatred magnet for the US. It's very simple. It is not a question of whether you think that they are right or they are wrong or they are desirable or they are undesirable. The fact is that these drone strikes lead to large-scale resentment and ongoing anger in that country. Now, from a human rights perspective, our perspective is that these are uh, the predator drone strike program is run as a secret CIA program. It has no oversight. It has no accountability. Um, there are persistent claims of civilian casualties, which certainly groups such as ours or anybody else is unable to verify. Uh, but the fact remains that the onus is on the US to prove in the face of these persistent claims that it is in fact not causing uh, large-scale civilian casualties. And the fact also remains that regardless of the legal gymnastics that um, the Obama administration may engage in, the drone strikes, as they are occurring now, are um, illegal. CIA drone strikes are illegal in light of international law. Um, the issue then arises, why can the US not stop doing them? And the reason why the US can't stop uh, uh, the drone strike program or doesn't want to is because it is equally true that while Pakistani public opinion reacts viscerally and, and, and uh, uh, is extremely hostile to these strikes, the Pakistani government and the Pakistani military is, regardless of their public posturing on the matter, complicit in these very strikes. Even today, the strikes that take place take place on the basis of ground intelligence provided by the Pakistani military. And I think that that is absolutely crucial because it again feeds into where I began, which was the culture of doublespeak, which has characterized the US-Pakistan relationship. This is doublespeak that occurs at both ends. 
Uh, it is particularly acute now at the Pakistani end, where Pakistan actually finds that the contradictions of that country, the disconnect between reality and rhetoric, are collapsing in on themselves. The contradictions are collapsing in on themselves, and the Pakistani state does not know how to square the circle. Neither does the US. Now, what is going to be the impact of all of this on Pakistan from a rights perspective, and what has it been? It appears that Pakistan is, if things persist in the way that they are, that Pakistan risks greater international isolation, that it risks greater American anger, However, the Pakistani military is not willing to let go of what it perceives as its bottom line strategic requirements. The conundrum for it, of course, is that it is not achieving them either. Just today in Delhi, uh, Leon Panetta has uh, issued a very stark warning to Pakistan. It is, it is noteworthy that this happened in Delhi. Um, the U.S. has now gone public with the fact that it wants an enhanced role for India in Afghanistan. These were all red lines uh, by Pakistan. And clearly, uh, while this is at one level a game of brinkmanship, it is also a sign of things to come. Now, in how is the Pakistani military and the Pakistani state more broadly dealing with this within the country. It is dealing with this within the country, and this is the part that worries me, by allowing license for extremist groups, for a shrinking of liberal discourse, um, or for greater power to militants and militants, militant groups uh, who seek to challenge the Western worldview, if you will. In the process, they are damaging Pakistani society and right safeguards in Pakistan. Let me give you an example. I want to talk about the province of Balochistan in Pakistan. This is a mineral-rich province. It has uh, seen a steady deterioration of the human rights situation in the last three years, and that situation is getting steadily worse. There are multiple actors operating in the province. There is an insurgency led by Baloch nationalists, and the Pakistani state is fighting that insurgency. The Pakistani state, the military, uh, the, the military intelligence is the lead agency there. The FC, which is a paramilitary group controlled by the military, the frontier constabulary, these are the engines of abuse. They have affected large-scale disappearances extrajudicial killings of Baloch nationalists, and widespread torture and jailing of those political opponents. Baloch nationalists, on the other hand, have also upped the ante and are killing non-Baloch settlers in that province who are largely people who are Urdu-speaking and Punjabi-speaking. In the meantime, the Taliban are also a presence in Balochistan and are targeting girls' schools, and their opponents uh, and uh, other ideological opponents of theirs. And finally, 
there is the Lashkar-e-Jangbi, which is a Pakistan-based Sunni extremist militant group that wishes to cleanse Pakistan of its Shia population. And the Lashkar-e-Jangbi is targeting the Hazara community, about half a million people. About 350 of the Hazara have been killed in the last three years and about 150 of those have been killed in the last one year. The bottom line is that Balochistan, which is Pakistan's richest province um, in terms of mineral wealth, is a no-go area for most people. And Quetta, the capital city, is a city where virtually all communities live in a state of fear, and it, is, it represents an ethnic tinderbox. Now, in February, Congressman Rohrer Baker uh, in the US held a congressional hearing on Balochistan. Congressman Rohrer Baker does not know very much about Balochistan. He does not even know how to say Balochistan. Um, his views on Balochistan are ill-informed and ill-advised. He supports independence for Balochistan, not factoring in that almost half the population of Balochistan is in fact not Baloch, and, and, and encouraging this kind of activity may well lead to an ethnic bloodbath. Right now, what you have is an ethnically inspired war of attrition. Now. But what it did achieve, what the congressman's hearing did achieve, was that it brought Balochistan center stage in Pakistan. For years, the Pakistani state has been in denial about the fact that it is presiding over large-scale abuse in the province. And what brought Balochistan center stage was, interestingly, paranoia about American intentions. Because part of the discourse in Pakistan is that the US wishes to balkanize Pakistan, that it wishes to break up that country. When the congressional hearing took place, hawks within the Pakistani establishment, hawks within Pakistani media saw this as the most blatant attempt by the US to actually push forward that agenda of balkanization. Now, I testified at this hearing, and my view was simple and straightforward. It is that it is my job to highlight human rights abuses anywhere, and if the US Congress gives me a platform to do that, I will certainly use it. Um, also, my view was that countries are not created or broken by congressional hearings, and certainly not by congressional hearings presided over by someone who is as marginal a figure in terms of his foreign policy attitudes as, as Congressman Rohrabacher. But I think it is revealing that Pakistan actually has made attempts in the last couple of weeks, and these attempts may well turn out to be uh, uh, ineffective, like many other previous such attempts. It has made attempts to address the issue of Balochistan because it feels that its great big strategic enemy, the US, is actively engaging with this exercise. And so,
That brings us to the other very interesting point in the Pakistani public imagination, right or wrong. It appears that the US has replaced India as the greatest threat to Pakistani national security. How is Pakistan to deal with this? Pakistan is, to, is going to, it appears, deal with this by first creating a climate of fear for people who are today perceived to be pro-American. These are people like me, people who belong to the international community, who uh, are spokespersons for, for uh, organizations such as Human Rights Watch, who are human rights defenders. And, there is there, and this, of course, attitude is rich with irony because these were the same people who 20 years ago were uh, um, referred to as communist subversives because they were arguing that uh, the jihad should not take place in Afghanistan. So everyone who was of the left has become an, an American agent, so to speak, and everyone who uh, was an ally of the U.S. has become an enemy of the U.S. and, and, and is uh, uh, sympathetic to various brands of, of Islamist essentialist politics, if not uh, extremism. Just three days ago, on the 4th of June, Asma Jahangir, who is Pakistan's most eminent human rights uh, activist, for the first time in a 30-year career, high-profile career, accused the ISI of plotting to kill her. This is the first such accusation she has made. Now, you may not be necessarily a fan of Ms. Jahangir's. You may find that uh, you disagree with her views. But the fact remains that this is the first time she has made such an accusation in 30 years of activism, where she has been a consistent critic of the military. There is a very serious problem in Pakistan today, and it is that this business of anti-Americanism is being transacted in a way that seeks to clamp down on plurality, on debate, on attempts at creating an equitable society, and it seeks to find refuge for the state in a default right-wing nationalism rich in Islamist rhetoric. Uh, this is a, a, a political sentiment best encapsulated by uh, um, the cricketer Imran Khan um, and, and, and his political party. It is uh, found in the allies formal and informal that Mr. Khan has, which are an, an entity called the Defy Pakistan Council or the Defense of Pakistan Council, which is a motley crew of religious parties and extremist groups uh, that are at the forefront of persecuting minorities in Pakistan, at uh, targeting uh, non-Muslim and Muslim uh, uh, minorities in the country, and creating a climate of fear and intimidation. But what gives them oxygen and what gives them political ingress is not the hatred that they espouse, but the anti-Americanism that they espouse. Now, 
The question, of course, is this talk is titled Free Fall or Resurgence. I have given you a fairly dire prognosis of what is happening in Pakistan and the toxic role that the U.S., whether by choice uh, or not, has ended up playing. The question is, are there any good things happening in Pakistan? And interestingly, it is a country of many contradictions, and I'm equally pleased to report that there are many good things happening in Pakistan. There is a free fall and a resurgence all at the same time. And now, now let me outline to you where I find the resurgence. The government that is in power in Pakistan, it's an elected government, it came into power in 2008. It has not been the most exemplary of governments. It has a poor record of governance, and it suffers from all the problems that you would expect um, in a Praetorian state making a transition to some sort of civilian rule. There is corruption. There is systemic corruption. Uh, there is a lack of will on the part of the government to challenge extremist actors to enforce the right of the state. Uh, they do not control the military or the intelligence agencies at all. And early on in their term, they decided that they were not even going to try. Um, that said, just the fact that a government, an elected government in Pakistan, has lasted four years and three months of its five-year term and is less than a year away from what will be the first transfer of power from one civilian government to another in Pakistan's history is a remarkable achievement. If you look at, Pakistani, at the Pakistani parliament, it has an impressive, impressive record of legislation to protect women, to deal with issues of gender discrimination, to devolve power down to the provinces, and to create mechanisms for human rights protections. Now, of course, these mechanisms, we will see how operational they become. But the fact is that if you look at the parliamentary record or legislation, it is nothing short of impressive. The fact is that for all the social and legal discrimination against women in Pakistan, today Pakistan also has the most progressive anti-sexual harassment laws in South Asia. The government has also begun a social protection program called the Benazir Income Support Program. Now, depending on your politics, you may disagree with that program. You may say that it provides a handout to people, that this inculcates and encourages a culture of dependency. But the fact of the matter is that the Benazir Income Support Program provides that money, 1,000, 2,000 rupees, to the poorest 30% of Pakistani society. It is Pakistan's first long-term social protection program. And certainly to someone like me, 
it is the government of Pakistan actually breaking the mold to do something that the Pakistani state does not do, which is reach out and seek to provide redress and reprieve to the poorest, most vulnerable sections of society. Of course, in this program, there are, there are leakages. There is the systemic corruption that you would find. But certainly, recently, I was having a conversation at, uh, with officials at the World Bank, and they say that it is, in fact, so uh, um, uh, uh, effective a social protection program uh, that there is some talk of replicating programs like this in other parts of the world. Also, in terms of, the, of, of militancy, Pakistan suffered at the height of the campaign something like 60 or 70 suicide bombings a year in the last two or three, four years. That number has come down and a semblance of normality has returned to uh, Pakistan. These are, of course, uh, big statements, and one has to be very careful about making them because this may, uh, um, the situation may change. But what I'm trying to say to you is that there is a move towards something better, and I think that civilian rule and democracy and constitutional rule has played a very, very important role. It is absolutely telling that today in Pakistan, people will tell you that they despise the government, that they despise uh, the ruling PPP, that they perhaps even despise the opposition uh, PMLN party. But there is certainly in urban Pakistan and in Pakistani youth, which is most of the country, a consensus on civilian rule. You do not find people asking for a return to military rule. This is a sea change in Pakistan, even in what was the historical heartland of Pakistan, of the military, um, northern Punjab. There is no appetite for military rule. And this lack of appetite, this desire for Pakistan to have a, uh, the rule of law is, I think, a fairly remarkable achievement given the brutalization that society has suffered in the last several years. One other thing I would like to point out, and that is um, that part of this democratization process has been the emergence of an independent judiciary in Pakistan. Now, this is a remarkable thing. The fact is that the Pakistani judiciary is entirely independent of the executive, certainly uh, to the point where the executive is, is uh, deeply unhappy about, about uh, uh, the judiciary's capacity to challenge it and to hold it to account. This is a creditable development. Having said that, we have also documented ongoing and persistent incursions into the due domain of the legislature and the executive by the judiciary, what we call judicial overreach. This is an, a hyperactive judiciary, and it is an activist judiciary, and 
it exerts and asserts its power by often bringing into the judicial domain what are political matters. It is also perhaps a default right-wing judiciary. So it does not necessarily always act in defense of fundamental rights. Sometimes it acts in ways that are counterintuitive uh, and that actually seek to curtail fundamental rights. But the fact is that it is an independent player. Similarly, the media in Pakistan enjoys an unprecedented level of freedom. The media is highly critical of the government, of governments, including the provincial governments. And a lot of the time, the media actually spews uh, venom, uh, acts unprofessionally, um, is a agent of hatred and uh, extremism rather than the opposite. But it is free. And there is a greater plurality of opinion available today for all to see in Pakistan than there has ever been before. Above all, while these institutions have and these players have confronted each other repeatedly, so the judiciary and the government have had repeated standoffs in the last three years, the media has repeatedly attacked uh, the government. But all of these actors have so far taken things to the brink and then stepped back. And that, I think, is very, very important, and it's very telling, because the, the Supreme Court of Pakistan also understands that it derives its power from constitutional rule, just as the government of Pakistan does. And also, the Pakistani media knows that it is only free even to spew venom and hatred as long as there, is, there are constitutional guarantees for free, free expression. So that is the resurgence part of it. I'm sorry if I have failed to satisfy any or all bodies of, of opinion, because I am neither an absolute pessimist about Pakistan, nor, as you may have gathered, um, a bubbly optimist. Uh, but I think that we can now move to questions and answers. And 